This is number 4222. Derek Prince speaks on the subject, The Fullness of the Cross. This message is entitled, The Cost of Redemption. Today we come to the last section of our studies on the cross. And the theme of this closing section is indicated by the title on the last page of your outline, The Cross Revealed the Love of God. I believe it's appropriate that we close by studying the love of God. If you could say that any one theme of the Bible is the greatest, I believe we'd have to say it's the love of God. Any study of the cross that doesn't focus sometime on the love of God is an incomplete study. There are many, many different possible ways of approaching this theme. I'm going to approach it by one particular route, which is to try to discover the extent of God's love by the value that he set on us or by the price that he paid for us. So that's the way we'll be looking at this. What was the price that God was willing to pay for us, for you and me. I believe if you can receive this by faith, it will do a great deal for your self-image. If you feel uh, unimportant or unworthy or in some way inferior, I do believe that's an indication that you've never understood the value that God set upon you. And the value that he set upon you is the expression of his love for you. I don't believe that the love of God can be measured. Also, the love of God cannot be explained. It's very interesting, but nowhere in the Bible do you find an explanation of God's love. I think we'll begin with a little passage of scripture that's not in your outline in Deuteronomy chapter 7 where Moses is trying to tell Israel why God loved them. <laughs> and it's an interesting example. He says in Deuteronomy 7 verse 6, and these words should apply to you and me as believers in Jesus, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. Do you realize that we are God's special treasure? And then Moses seems to start out to tell Israel why God loved them, but he, he never gets there. If you read verse 7, The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people's. For you were the least of all peoples. That's true of us. We were the least. We're the, uh, the foolish, the base, the despised. So why did God love us? Well, next verse says, but because the Lord loves you. So he did not love you but because you were this or this or this, but because he loves you. And that's the end of the explanation. <laughs> and you will search in vain for any explanation of God's love. The unexplained love of God is the ultimate fact behind history. Now, I want to 
take a particular route to try to depict the love of God. I'm going to consider two parables that are found in Matthew chapter 13. And I want to say right at the outset, the way I'm interpreting these parables is by no means the only possible way. I know from the cross-references in the margin of my own Bible that whoever put the cross-references there interpreted the parable in a different way. That doesn't worry me. Don't let it worry you. Just accept what I'm saying because one of the features about parables is that they can be applied and interpreted in different ways in different contexts. These two parables are the parable of the treasure in the field and the pearl of great price. They're very short. The treasure in the field is one verse, the pearl of great price is two verses. But the content is really measureless. So we'll begin reading from Matthew 13 verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid. And for joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has, and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. The common feature to each parable is that the man in question found something so valuable that in order to obtain it, He had to part with everything else he had. Let's consider the picture first of all of the treasure in the field. How did the treasure get hidden in the field in the first place? Well, I think if you are familiar with the history of the Middle East, especially the land that's called Palestine, you will understand that it was frequently invaded by bands of marauders who came in to plunder and to steal. So we can picture this man with his house and all his valuables in it and the news comes that marauders are on the way and he knows he can't hide his house so he takes a big wooden chest and piles all his valuables, his money, his jewels, everything that's of value into the chest, goes out at night, digs a hole in his field and buries the chest and covers it over, hoping that no one will find it. Well, perhaps in the ensuing fighting, he gets killed. And he's the only person who knew there was a treasure buried in that field. So the treasure may lie there for centuries. Who knows? And then this man is walking across the field one day and he kicks his toe on something and he thinks it's a rock but he looks down and it's a piece of wood so he wants to find out what it is he starts to dig around and he finds this rotting old chest and he just pulls up one corner and his eye sees jewelry, pearls, gold and he realizes in a moment what's happened now the story says he hid it again why? because he didn't want anyone else to know there was treasure in that field, you see? Because the price of the field would have gone up a whole lot (laughs) if anybody else had known about the treasure. Now, 
he didn't want the field he wanted the treasure but in order to have a legal right to the treasure he had to buy the field and when he inquired the price it was a very high price some of the neighbors said whatever does that man want that field for nothing ever really grew in it why is he prepared to spend so much money on that field because he doesn't tell anybody then he goes home to his wife I'm adding a little bit to the parable you understand <laughs> says, uh, I found a field I'm going to buy oh why are you going to buy it well I like the field I'm going to buy it is it a productive field well not very but I'm still going to buy it how much is it going to cost and tells her the sum she said where are we ever going to get that money from when he said we're going to sell our house we're going to sell our farm we're going to sell our shop we're going to sell my instrument we're going to sell all that are you crazy what are you talking about what do you want that field for but he says we're going to do it anyhow so he sells everything he has everything he's left with nothing set the clothes on his back and he takes the money and purchases the field and then when he's got title to the field and he really knows says to his wife now I'll show you why I wanted the field he takes her out and they begin to pry open the lid of the chest and she sees all the tremendous value that's in the chest and she's convinced at last take the other parable the pearl it's very important to see that this man was a merchant he was not a tourist he didn't just wander through the street of Kona and see some pearls in a shop window and listen to the story that the lady told he found one pearl and he knew immediately it was unique there was no other pearl he'd ever seen like it and not only was he a merchant but he really loved his business so found out the price of the pearl went back and said to his wife I found the pearl oh how much does it cost well it costs a good deal how are you going to get the money from we're going to sell everything we have <laughs> are you crazy for one pearl but he goes ahead and does it then he buys it and then he holds the pearl in his hand and he looks down at it and he says I paid a lot for you but you're worth everything I paid and more now those are parables you see I'm going to interpret them for you this is the prince interpretation I have to tell you Dr. Schofield has a slightly different interpretation not altogether different but slightly different the man is a picture of Jesus really in a sense he's the only one that can buy we have nothing to buy with when it comes to the spiritual realm the field is interpreted by Matthew 13:38 where it says the field is the world and I think that runs consistently through this chapter every time the field is mentioned it's the world so Jesus 
with his divine insight, looking at the world, knew that hidden somewhere in the world was this priceless chest full of treasure. What was the chest? What was the treasure? Well, I'm suggesting to you it's God's people whom he foreknew from eternity. The ones he chose for himself. Now in order to have legal right to the treasure like the man in the story he had to buy the field. It wasn't the field he wanted it was the treasure in the field. What is the treasure in the field? It's God's people. People like you and me and millions and millions more and there are a lot of them still in the field. Now let's picture ourselves as the Lord's servants he's paid the price for the field what was the price? his precious blood that's right but our job is to go out into the field and dig up the treasure he has the legal right to it but he gives us the privilege and there's a lot of treasure that's right down under the earth and it's all dirty and maybe it's corroded and it takes a lot of work to get the treasure out and make it what it ought to be. Many, many years ago when I was a new Christian in 1943, I'd only been saved two years, the British Army sent me to the Sudan, which is the country just south of Egypt. It was then a British uh, protectorate or something like that administered by the British government the word Sudan means the black people uh, they're very primitive the northern part of the Sudan is totally Muslim the southern part is very primitive animist but has, is becoming Christian I was for a short while as a medical orderly put in charge of what they call the reception station in a railway junction in a town called Atbara in the northern Sudan. I remember, this is just by the way, but it sticks with me, I remember being in the train going there from Khartoum and because I was a British soldier I had a carriage all to myself which the civilians couldn't use. And we stopped at this platform somewhere. If you've never been in the third world you can't picture this but the platform was just totally alive with creatures. Every kind of thing that you could imagine. Old men, old women, young men, young women, toddlers, babies being nursed by their mothers, donkeys, camels, chickens, dogs, I mean it was a seething mass of life and as I looked out of the window at them without being super spiritual I just said to myself I wonder what God thinks of these people and I got an immediate answer I mean I, it stays with me to this day some weak some foolish some proud some wicked and some exceeding precious and as far as I'm concerned, I've never had any reason to change that categorization of humanity. 
some weak, some foolish, some proud, some wicked, and some exceeding precious. I think any way you look out on humanity in the mass, there'll be representatives of every one of those categories. So I arrived at that barra and I was put in charge of what was called a reception station, which was just a place where if soldiers were sick, they were brought in, and I decided whether they need medicine or whether they needed to go to hospital or whatever it might be. Well, now, the British Army never provided soldiers with pajamas, so for years I got used to sleeping in my underwear. But in this reception station, there were two hospital beds and there were three white nightdresses, flannel nightdresses, with which we were supposed to equip patients if we put them to bed. Well, first of all, to have a really soft bed was a luxury. And then I thought, I'm going to sleep in a nightdress. I mean, here it is, why shouldn't I have it? So I slept, I put this nightdress on, went to bed. Well, I don't know how to describe this, but something supernatural happened. And I woke up with this tremendous burden of prayer for the people of the Sudan. It was totally supernatural. And I have to say, in the natural, you really wouldn't find them very attractive people. And I just began to pour out my heart in prayer to God for these people whom I didn't know and in the natural didn't care much about. And something happened, and I don't know how to describe this, but my own, my clothing became luminous. And it was like, in a sense, Jesus was there inside me. I don't know if I can make this clear. And he began to speak to me about the way he loved those people. And he spoke to me about his jewels. And he says they're buried deep in the earth. And you have to mine them. And then he said they're cut with suffering and washed with tears. And this, I think, is in line with what I'm saying. Well, after that, I was sent to another place, a little place in the Red Sea Hills called Jibate, where I spent the rest of the year. I was put in charge of the, quote, native labor in the hospital. It was a very small hospital. There were two doctors and uh, just a few people like myself. And it was a hospital, incidentally, for Italian prisoners of war. That's the only people there. And of course there were thousands and thousands of Italian prisoners of war under the care of the British at that time in 1943. And so I ended up being responsible to see that the native labor did its job. Well, the man in charge of the native labor was named Ali, which is a very common Muslim name, Arabic name. And he was a rogue. I mean, he... He cheated on the wages that he got. He kept back something. He was a brawler. Uh, he, was a, he was a very good footballer. And um, we never seemed to get kind of any real relationship. I would meet him every morning. And uh, we'd talk about what had to be done. He'd learned English simply by talking to soldiers. He never had a lesson in English. But he had an amazingly accurate memory. For instance, one of the things we had to do was disinfestation of blankets. 
my British soldiers never could get the word disinfestation right. I mean, no matter how many times they tried. He heard it once and never got it wrong after that. Well, for a while we just didn't really make contact. And then I discovered one day that he believed in the devil. All Muslims do. I knew nothing about Muslims at that time. So well, I said, I believe in the devil too. So that was our point of meeting, strangely enough. <laughs> And after that, he would come to my little store because I was also in charge of the rations for the hospital. And we'd line up the day's work. And one day, he was late. So when he came in, I said, why are you late? Well, he said, I went to the hospital clinic to have my foot dressed. I've got a sore on my foot and it doesn't heal. Well, I knew what it said in Mark 16, they shall lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. I'd never seen anybody do it, but there it was. So I said, would you like me to pray for you? Oh yes, he said. Well, I said, the Bible says if I lay hands on you in the name of Jesus, pray for you, you'll be healed. So he was quite ready. So I, I mean, it was, I treated him like a bomb about to explode. I laid my hands on him, prayed for him. A week later, he showed me his foot, completely healed. I tell you, I was somewhat surprised. <laughs> <laughs> the next thing that happened I didn't know how I got into telling this story but now I've got in I can't get out <laughs> the next thing that happened was that I was lying in my bed one evening about 7pm and I felt the most excruciating pain in my ankle that I had ever experienced so I leapt off the bed with a scream and discovered I'd been bitten by a hornet now Sudanese hornets are not to be played with well the scripture came to me, they shall tread upon serpents and scorpions and nothing shall by any means hurt you. I said, that should be good for hornets. So I walked up and down in that room for about 10 minutes just saying, nothing shall by any means hurt me, nothing shall by any means hurt me. And at the end of that time, the pain had disappeared and all I had in my ankle was just a little hole where the sting had gone and no inflammation of any kind. So the next day, in conversation with Ali, I said to him, I got stung by a hornet last night. Stung by a hornet? He said, where? Well, I showed him on my, my ankle. And he said, it didn't swell up. I said, no. He said, why not? Well, I said, I prayed in the name of Jesus. So he took me to the door of the store and showed me a man hobbling across the hospital compound with one knee <laughs> bent up. He said, you know what happened to that man? I said, no, he got stung by a hornet. So I now had his attention. So then, well, it's very important. I mean, it's really, you, you know, I mean, he wouldn't have listened to anything I said at the beginning. So I said, well, I read the Bible every day. Perhaps you'd like me to read it to you. He said, yes. So here am I reading the King James Version of the Bible and translating it into soldier's English, if you please. <laughs> so that went on for a while. And then he said, I'd like to teach you to ride a camel. Now, you may have been to Egypt and been on one of those tame creatures, but that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> These were real camels. So, we went out and I mastered the art of staying on a camel. I don't know about saying riding it. Then one day I said to him, why don't we ride out on our camels into the, into the outside country there and take some food with us? Because I was in charge of the rations, I had a selection of food. So we set out on our camels, got there, but we hadn't taken any water. 
and there was a little brackish stream trickling down the foothill and he said to me, we Sudanese drink this water but you white people don't. Well I said since there's nothing else I'm willing to drink it. So he said, well why are you willing to drink it and other white people aren't? Well I said, I drink it in the name of Jesus and Jesus said if I drink anything deadly in his name it won't hurt me. Well he looked at that, I drank the water and I didn't swell up or die or do anything. So that day it happened that we were reading John chapter 3 about being born again. So well, I tried to tell him what it was to be born again. I said, God gives you a new heart. Well, he just laughed in my face. That was ridiculous. <laughs> so we got back on our camels to go back. And he kept on talking about this, being born again. Well, I said to him, would you like to be born again? He said, yes, I would. Now, I didn't know how to handle this. I said, well, listen, tonight when the sun sets, you in your heart pray to God and ask to be born again and I'll be in my back room and I'll pray for you at the same time. Okay, so he said yes. Well, the next morning we met as scheduled at 10 o'clock. I said to him, did you pray? He said yes. I said, did you get anything? Did anything happen? He said nothing. And I'm so glad he was honest. So while I was rather disappointed, the Holy Spirit whispered in my ear, he's a Muslim. Now I knew very, very little about Muslim. I said, did you pray in the name of Jesus? He said, no. Well, I said, you can't be born again unless you pray in the name of Jesus. Are you willing to do that? He said, yes. So I said, all right, this evening, when the sun goes down, you pray in your heart, I'll pray in my back. Next morning, I met him. I looked at him. I said, you've got it. <laughs> And he said, I have. And I tell you, he had. Every per person in the personnel of that hospital wanted to know what had happened to my friend Danny. He was a totally changed person. The commanding officer of the hospital, the medical doctor sent for me and said, what's happened to your friend Danny? I said, he got saved. He said, what's that? Well, I said, let me tell you. <laughs> my British soldiers that were with me saw the change and I started a Bible class with three soldiers of whom two got saved and one apparently didn't. Now, I didn't intend to get involved in that but it, in a way it's an illustration of what I'm trying to share with you that the Lord Jesus that night there in Atbara before I ever got to Jebet gave me just a tiny little measure of his passionate love for those very unlovable people. They, they were called the Hadandawa. That was the name of that tribe. The British soldiers called them the Fuzzywuzzies because they habitually did their hair up about 12 inches above their head and greased it with mutton fat. So it was not very attractive. <laughs> but the Lord loved them and he imparted just a little bit of his love for them to me. During the time I was there in that hospital, Ali and one other workman got saved and I baptized Ali in the hospital swimming pool before I left. But we're talking now about why I went into all that was because Jesus was talking to me about going down into the earth and mining out the jewels that are buried there. And that's why I got into that from this treasure in the field because our 
responsibility as the Lord's servant, I believe, is to go into the field and find the treasure, unearth it, clean it up, remove the corrosion, the rust, whatever it may be, and make it fit to be presented to the Lord. But in the parable, going back to that, Jesus paid all that he had for that field. That's the measure of his love. And then you take the parable of the pearl. Again, the merchantman I understand to be Jesus. Now you can interpret the pearl various ways. But I believe that it's legitimate to interpret the pearl as every redeemed soul. I believe it's important to understand that if there'd only been one soul to be saved, Jesus would have paid the full price. And I believe this can really help you to have a sense of your own worth as a redeemed soul. You are the pearl of great price. And uh, I think of the joy that that merchant experienced when he bought that pearl. He didn't complain about the price. He was just satisfied he'd got the pearl. And I'd like to suggest to you for a moment that you picture that merchant there with the pearl in his hand and he's talking to it and he says now you're mine you belong to me you cost me a lot but I don't regret what I paid you're the most beautiful pearl I've ever seen you're altogether lovely you're altogether perfect. If you have a problem with self-worth, why don't you just for a moment picture yourself in the hand of the Lord Jesus, the nail-pierced hand of the Lord, and say, I am that pearl. He died for me. He paid that price for me. If there'd been no one else in all the world to be saved, he would still have paid the price for me. There's some very beautiful words in the Song of Solomon which I, you can interpret, if you will, as the Lord speaking to a redeemed soul. You can interpret it as the Lord speaking to the church. But somehow it's a little more exciting when you think about the Lord speaking to you personally. In the Song of Solomon, chapter 1, verse 15. I think the reference in your outline is 1.5. That's wrong. It's 1.15. Behold, you are fair, or oh, beautiful, my love. Behold, you are fair. You have dove's eyes. Now the dove, so often is a type of the Holy Spirit. You have eyes that see by the Holy Spirit. You can see me as others can't. Interestingly enough, I've also been told, I'm not an expert on birds, but I've been told that the dove is the only bird who has two eyes that can focus on a single object. Every other bird looks with one eye or the other eye, but the doves can focus. And so when the Lord says to his beloved, you have dove's eyes, it means you can see by the Holy Spirit and you can see me as the single focus of your sight. And then in the Song of Solomon, chapter 4, 
and verse 7 you are all fair my love and there is no spot in you isn't that beautiful not one spot not one blemish now I want to consider the price that Jesus paid we've talked about the purchase we've talked about the motivation for the purpose for the purchase let's go back to the price which is stated very very clearly in various parts of the New Testament we'll only look in two passages Acts chapter 20 and verse 28 this is Paul talking to the elders of the church at Ephesus and he says therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood notice there that Paul gives to Jesus the specific title of God he says God purchased the church with his own blood so the purchase price was the blood of Jesus and then in 1st Peter chapter 1 beginning at verse 17 1st Peter chapter 1 verse 17 and if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work conduct yourselves throughout the time of your sojourning here in fear some Christians have never heard that verse that's not slavish fear but it's a deep sense of responsibility what's the reason because of the price that was paid to redeem us we never must treat ourselves as cheap let me say that frankly to young ladies never make yourself cheap you don't have to do that to get the right man and generally speaking a man will not value you more than you value yourself when you realize you've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus you cannot afford to make yourself cheap alright going on to verse 18 knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible or perishable things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot so what was the price that Jesus paid to redeem us his precious blood he's called the Lamb of God without blemish and without spot a blemish I understand is something that a, a creature would be born with a spot is something that would come upon it afterwards so Jesus is without blemish he's out without original sin and he's without spot he's without personal sin and it's his blood that has redeemed us there's another reference in the Psalms which is worth turning to in Psalm 130 this is not in your outline so you might want to write it down Psalm 130 verse 7 O Israel hope in the Lord for with the Lord there is mercy and with him is abundant redemption redemption is buying back you understand that the old King James Version said plenteous redemption this one says abundant I think one of the new versions says overflowing redemption but 
You've got to understand what it means is Jesus overpaid. He paid more than it was worth. I have a, a week's Bible teaching basically on this theme. And I wanted to find a good word to describe the love of God that wasn't worn out by religious cliches. And after a while, I chose the word extravagant. Because that's not overused by religious people. Jesus was extravagant. He paid everything. He didn't hold anything back. He paid actually more than the price. If you could kind of see that. God's love is extravagant. He's not stingy. So many people have got a picture of God as stingy. He's extremely generous. And when he sees something he wants, he'll pay the price and more. Now, I want to consider the way in which Jesus paid the price. And I want to turn back to an Old Testament preview of the sacrifice of Jesus in Leviticus chapter 16. I think there are two great uh, prophetic pictures of Jesus and his sacrifice in the Old Testament. There are many, but I think the two great ones are the Passover lamb and the Day of Atonement. There were probably most of us more familiar with the Passover lamb than with the Day of Atonement which is described in Exodus 16. The Day of Atonement is a Jewish holiday which has persisted from then until now. It's called in Hebrew Yom Kippur or Yom Kippurim, the day of the Hebrew word for atonement. And basically most Jewish people still fast from sunset to sunset on that day. In Jerusalem it's an absolutely unique day because all traffic ceases just before sunset and there is no more traffic except an emergency vehicle occasionally and a total silence settles on the city you can hardly imagine what it's like to be in a completely silent city and you can walk out right in the streets because there's no traffic nothing's going to run you down and even the non-religious Jews who are in the majority are pretty respectful about this day of atonement when it says here in Leviticus 16, we won't be reading it, God says you shall afflict your souls. The Jewish people have always understood that means to fast. And they do fast. Basically, without food or water for 24 hours. However, I just want to take the central part of this. The essence of this is the high priest going into the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the sins of himself, his household, and the people of Israel. He only did it once in a year. It was the only time that any human being went beyond the second veil out of the holy place into the Holy of Holies. And the way in which he did it was very exactly prescribed. Had anything varied or been missing, he would have died. So, Let's read from verse 11. And Aaron shall bring the bull of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and his house. 
You need to understand that the Hebrew word in the Old Testament for atonement means covering. Another form of that same noun is, is used for the pitch with which they waterproofed the ark. So that gives you a kind of picture. See, full atonement was never made in the Old Testament. All that happened was sin was covered for one more year. But it, until Jesus died, Jesus came to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. That's totally different. After that, there's no more sacrifice for sin. All right, and we're going back to verse 11. To make atonement for himself and for his house, and he shall kill the bull as the sin offering which is for himself. Then he shall take a censer full of burning coals of fire from the altar before the Lord, with his hands full of sweet incense, beaten fine, and bring it inside the veil. So the high priest had to have two things to get through the veil. He had to have a censer of coals with fragrant incense on it so that there was a cloud of incense that covered him and filled the Holy of Holies. And the other thing he had to have was the blood of the sacrifice. So it is with blood and incense. Now I think that's a pattern for us in a way. I think we have no right of access into the presence of God unless we come with the incense of worship, the blood of Jesus on our behalf. Then it says, verse 13, He shall put the incense on the fire before the Lord, that the cloud of incense may cover the mercy seat that is on the testimony, that's the, the copy of the Lord that's inside the ark, lest he die. Verse 14, He shall take some of the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger on the mercy seat on the east side, and before the mercy seat he shall sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Now the tabernacle or the temple faced east. So the east side of the mercy seat was what you would call the front of it, what we would call the front. So in approaching the mercy seat, making sure all the time that he was enveloped in this cloud of incense, the high priest sprinkled blood seven times in front of the mercy seat and then he sprinkled it on the front of the mercy seat. Now, seven, of course, is a very significant number in the Bible, but I believe that had an exact fulfillment in the experience of Jesus. And I want with you to trace the sevenfold sprinkling of the blood of Jesus. Let me say something to you. We were talking about the difference between the soulish and the spiritual. And let me say one thing to you. Anybody who does not appreciate the blood of Jesus is soulish and not spiritual. That is one clear dividing line. We're going to talk further about what the blood of Jesus does for us. You see, vast sections of the church today have turned against the blood of Jesus. The Methodists have published a new hymn book which leaves out every hymn that refers to the blood of Jesus. This is going to be a major issue in the years that lie ahead. Alright, I don't think we'll have time to complete this, but we'll start and we we'll go on next time. In Luke chapter 22 and verse 44. This is in the Garden of Gethsemane.
as Jesus surrendered to the will of the Father in prayer says Luke 22 verse 44 and being in agony he prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground it wasn't a hot night it was probably pretty cool because it was in the springtime but it was the physical and spiritual and emotional agony that caused him to sweat and his blood transfused his sweat that was the first sprinkling of the blood then we go on or go back in the Bible but on in time to Matthew 26 and verse 67 this is Jesus in the high court of Annas the high priest in the court of Annas the high priest verse 67 then they spat in his face and beat him and others struck him with the palms of their hands but if you have a Bible with a marginal reference it says or with rods now I believe it was with rods because there was a very specific prophecy in the Old Testament that that's how it would be keep your finger in Matthew 26 and turn to Micah chapter 5 verse 1 Micah Hosea, Joel, Amos, Abadah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum. Now gather yourself in troops, O daughter of troops. He has laid siege against us. They will strike the judge of Israel with a rod on the cheek. To me that is a clear prediction of what happened to Jesus. But if you strike anybody with a rod on the cheek, you are certainly going to bring forth blood and then if we turn to Matthew 27 and verse 26 this is the final determination of, of Pontius Pilate as to what to do with Jesus it says then he released Barabbas to them and when he had scourged Jesus he delivered him to be crucified I would say better translation when he had him scourged because obviously the governor wasn't going to do it himself now a Roman scourge was a special instrument really of torture in which it had a handle and various um, lashes and in the lashes they embedded pieces of bone or metal so that it was deliberately designed to tear a person's flesh open so again that was the third sprinkling of his blood now for the fourth which goes very closely with it we have to turn back to the Old Testament to Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 6 I don't know whether you've ever realized that the New Testament tells us nothing of what went on inside Jesus during his sufferings it simply presents an objective picture of what happened but if you read the prophets and the Psalms with an insight you find out a whole lot of what Jesus endured within himself it's, that's where it is and in Isaiah 50 verse 6 remember I said to you earlier about messianic prophecy I'm sure it was this group I was talking to and the spirit of the Messiah predicted the sufferings of Jesus and the prophets spoke in the first person about things that didn't happen to them well, here's one very clear example Isaiah 50 verse 6 
I gave my back to those who struck me. That's the flogging. And notice he gave his back. He did it by his own free will and choice. It's very important to understand that. He did not struggle. He did not resist. He did not protest. I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Now I understand that means that amongst the other things they did to Jesus, they pulled out the hairs of his beard. And if they did, then they brought forth blood with that. Now we've almost exhausted our time and I think it would be better if we didn't try to squeeze anything more into this just let me enumerate the fourfold sprinkling of the blood which we have looked at. First it came out in his sweat, then they struck him on the face with rods, and then either in, in what order it's hard to say, they pulled out his beard and they flogged him on the back with this Roman scourge studded with metal and bone. So the Lord helping us, we'll continue the next session with a further study on that theme. For more great teaching from Derek Prince, tune in to Derek Prince Legacy Radio on a station in your area. Or you can listen online anytime at DerekPrince.org.